Welcome to the second episode of The Progcast, a podcast for progressives and open-minded people. In this first season, we're discussing dangerous ideas, ideas that people in power want to censor because they think they're dangerous, and also ideas that put scholars in danger because those people in power don't like them. This podcast is brought to you by the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom. I'm Scott Roberts, and I'll be your host for today. In this episode, I'll be chatting to David Benatar, professor of philosophy at the University of Cape Town, and the author of numerous books and articles, especially in the area of applied ethics. He has gained quite a lot of prominence as a philosopher worldwide in the past number of years due to his views on a philosophy called antinatalism, which many people, especially on the internet, have been quite impressed by. He's also no stranger to podcasts. He has debated antinatalism in podcasts with none other than Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson. But that's not the focus of today's episode. Professor Benatar has emerged as a staunch proponent and defender of academic freedom at the University of Cape Town in the past few years. And this is what I'm going to be chatting to him about today. Professor Benatar, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Nice to be with you. And as you know, after, over the course of this series, we'll be referring to the concept of academic freedom a lot. And what I'd like to achieve in this episode is for us to come up with a kind of working definition of academic freedom that we can really put to work for the rest of the series when we're discussing this concept. So my first question to you, and this is perhaps just a, a nice introduction, is what does it mean, firstly, to be free in general? And then more specifically, what does it mean to be free in an academic sense? Well, those are very big questions, but I understand we need to answer them briefly. So to look first at freedom, that can be understood in many different ways. One way is to understand it in an internal sense. So if you think about free will versus determinism, are our acts free at all? There's a question about that. That's not really of direct relevance to the question of academic freedom. We're going to just sort of bracket that kind of consideration and that kind of debate for, for now. Uh, then if you look at uh, freedom in a kind of external sense, it's typically uh, the absence of a constraint or a limitation or an interference from the outside. Uh, but even that's not uncontroversial because one's typically speaking then about what's called negative freedom. So freedom from uh, from external interference. There's also a positive kind of freedom, which instead of being the freedom from is a freedom to freedom to do certain things. That distinction is actually attributable to Isaiah Berlin, who, uh, who, who drew it, I believe, in, in, in his inaugural lecture. Uh, so that, those are two kinds of freedom, freedom from and the freedom to. And some people have suggested that it's not enough simply to not have interference from without. If you don't have adequate resources, you won't have the freedom to do certain things. So when we're discussing academic freedom in a scholarly context like UCT, are we talking about scholars' freedom to undertake research? Or are we talking about scholars' freedom from external constraints on their ability to do research, ability to teach, ability to learn? Right. So that distinction between freedom from and freedom to may not be the crucial distinction for us understanding what academic freedom is. There are lots of other controversies around that. Uh, some people want to conflate academic freedom with freedom of expression. And obviously, those two things are, are different. Freedom of expression is something that uh, all people ought to have a right to. It's not something that is unique to or specific to academia, although one component of academic freedom would need to be the freedom to express your views. Uh, but academic freedom can't be reduced to that. It's got to have a broader idea, a broader, a, a broader sense. 
And uh, here I think things become quite complicated because you can think about the academic freedom of individual academics or you could think about the academic freedom of academic units like departments, let's say, or faculties or about universities as a whole. Uh, and there may be slightly different considerations that apply in those different cases. There also can be different kinds of threats to academic freedom. So if we look historically at South Africa, the threat was typically from the government. So when the government was in the apartheid era passing the ironically named Extension of Universities Act, uh, that was now uh, a threat to the inner workings of the university. The government was trying to dictate to the university who may teach in the university and who may be taught and sometimes what may be taught. And so the university was resisting uh, government interference. And the famous vice-chancellor principal of the university at the time, T.B. Davy, understood academic freedom as uh, uh, the freedom to decide who teaches, who will be taught, what will be taught, how it will be taught. Uh, but I think it would be a mistake to think about academic freedom purely in those terms because imagine the situation were different. Imagine that the university was deciding to discriminate against people on arbitrary grounds and the government was seeking to interfere and to prevent that sort of, uh, that sort of uh, uh, discrimination. Then I don't think that we would be uh, saying, well, academic freedom is decisive in, in, in a context like that. It might be that the government would be uh, justified in interfering there with this purported academic freedom. Now, I realize we're moving now on from a question about what academic freedom is to what its limits are, uh, but uh, and we can discuss that in more detail in a while. What I wanted to gesture at this point is that it's somewhat, um, it's somewhat controversial as to what academic freedom is. We've got a certain history to that in South Africa, but you might find in a different context, different things would be, would be emphasized. So one possible threat to academic freedom is uh, the managerial university. So it may be that you've got uh, management in the university. It's all part of the university, but they're interfering with individual academics and what they may do. Or it might be that the academic enterprise is corrupted by financial interests from outside. So industry sponsoring certain kinds of research and coercing people in certain kinds of directions. So the context is going to matter in determining what the relevant kind of freedom is that one's wanting to champion. So I think the context in South Africa and really why we became concerned about this question of academic freedom in the first place is there are a number of people at universities in South Africa who allege that there are management practices on many university campuses in South Africa that really limit the scope of what scholars are able to do. Not only that, but perhaps um, certain ideologies within certain departments limit what scholars in those departments can do as well um, through processes of self-censorship or threats of losing jobs and that kind of thing, which is a very, very different thing to, to example, threats to academic freedom that happen in um, Pakistan, where the government, um, often on religious grounds, will interfere in the workings of academics um, because they don't like what those people are, are doing. Right. So I think what you're pointing to there is a difference between explicit interferences with academic freedom and more implicit ones. So when the government comes in and removes somebody or refuses for a certain person to be appointed, then you've got quite an explicit interference with academic freedom. But you're quite correct that on other occasions, what's going on is that there are much more insidious and subtle forms of pressure that people can't investigate certain topics, or if they do investigate them, they can't uh, express certain views, uh, not because they'll be locked up 
or, or because they'll be punished by the law, but because they'll be subject to negative reaction and quite serious negative reaction from uh, from others. Now, I think we need to be careful. Mere negative reaction from other people to one's views is not itself a threat to academic freedom. It may be that those others are expressing their views uh, as well, and they have the freedom to do that. Right. But in those cases in which there is an implicit kind of limitation on academic freedom, as you said, um, and a scholar truly doesn't feel like there is space for them to express a certain view, um, should we be worried about those instances? Are they as much of a threat to academic freedom as sort of external uh, interference? I think they can be. I think the subtle forms of uh, of threat can be can be as silencing as as others as the more explicit forms. So we should be concerned about that. But again, what do you do about it? That's going to be complicated. If you've got a clear government interference saying such and such a person may not be appointed or such and such a person must be appointed, then you know in principle what you need to do about that, that is to remove the government interference. Uh, but when you've got a kind of climate where people uh, feel silenced and they have to engage in self-censorship, it's not as clear what you do to address that. So we're going to be a much more piecemeal, slow process of, of doing that. One, one thing in principle is to try to diversify the intellectual environment. So instead of having hegemony of certain uh, certain thoughts and certain ideologies, you uh, try to cultivate an environment that is more open-minded, that is more intellectually diverse. So the interesting thing is that for all the talk about diversity, there's very, very little talk about diversity of opinion. And I think that's one of the things that Progress SA has really been trying to do with its activism and certainly with these podcasts as well, is open up a kind of space for debate in which different views can be heard so as to increase the amount of uh, diversity of thought at university campuses. Um, but you touched on something a little while ago, and I want to come back to that, um, is why we should be concerned about academic freedom in the first place. You know, Why does academic freedom matter and why should we care when we observe limitations on academic freedom? Well, part of the answer to that, I think, is uh, the reason why freedom more generally matters. Uh, so that's it's going. To, those same considerations are going to apply in the case of academic freedom. Uh, but let me try to unpack some of the valuable features of academic freedom specifically. So there's that component, which is freedom of expression within the academy, uh, the freedom to research topics that you want to research, uh, the freedom to express conclusions that you've reached via appropriate methodologies. Uh, all of that is important for the pursuit of truth. So if you've got some preconceived idea what the truth is and you're going to shut down all alternative views, you're unlikely to uncover any error in uh, in existing and, and, and reigning views. So the freedom, of, all the arguments we have for freedom of expression would apply as well uh, here. Now, there are going to be other values as well. So if you think historically in South Africa, academic freedom would have been a mechanism for opposing discrimination. So the government was seeking to impose discrimination. In that particular instance, if the university had been free to decide who would teach and who would be taught, you would have countered discrimination. But that would not always be the case. There might be other circumstances, as I indicated earlier, where academic freedom might actually foster discrimination rather than counter it. So the value of academic freedom will depend on the context. 
Sometimes it's going to promote certain values and sometimes it won't. And I think what really matters for liberals especially is this idea of the pursuit of truth. Um, not only truth in a sort of scientific sense, um, which might necessitate the freedom to do research and the freedom to find out which theory is most true um, to a, a given set of facts, but also truth in a moral sense, um, which I think that applies to your example about the apartheid government. Um, and perhaps we're concerned now with... Uh, when those in power want to steer academic discourse in a certain direction, that that might come at the cost of truth, which is something that concerns us and I think concerns most liberals. Some people have made the point, and you touched on this earlier, that there should be stringent limitations on academic freedom. Do you think there should be limits on academic freedom? Um, if so, what are those limits and sort of how do we decide where those limits lie? I think there should be limits on academic freedom, just like there should be limits on other kinds of freedom. You're familiar with that expression about my right to swing my arm ends at the tip of your nose. So freedom is very important, but if that involves slapping you around, well, that's not within the scope of my freedom to do that. There ought to be that limitation. The problem, of course, is that many people want to move from that very general idea that a freedom of a certain kind has its limits to the idea that the limits they want to place are justified. And more often than not, that leap is, is, is unjustified. So just because there's a limit doesn't mean to say that every limit you favor is a, is a justifiable limit. So I would say, for example, that uh, if somebody is using academic freedom in order to violate the rights of other people, then that does not fall within the scope of academic freedom. So if a university wants to use its purported academic freedom to discriminate against people on arbitrary grounds like their purported race or religion or sex, uh, that, that that does not fall within the scope of the academic freedom. They, that's exactly where a limitation should, uh, should kick in. Um, so I think you've touched on the harm principle, right, which is really the idea that one's exercise of freedom um, is okay until it starts harming another person. But it can be, sometimes be quite difficult to use the harm principle in practice. Right, apply it, for example, in political theory. Um, firstly, because it can sometimes be difficult to decide when harm has actually been done. But secondly, it can be difficult to figure out when that harm actually results from the exercise of freedom. And this was a question I especially struggled with, for example, with this case of the Israeli academic boycott. You know, when does welcoming an Israeli scholar to the science faculty at UCT actually cause harm to Palestinians? You know, is that a direct enough link in order to justify the limitation on academic freedom? Well, before we come to that specific case, let's look at the more general point that you've made about trying to understand when one is actually harming others. And I think people who are insufficiently attentive to freedom of expression and academic freedom will often take psychological disturbance or discomfort as a serious enough harm to warrant interference with somebody's freedom. So you express a view, uh, I get upset by that view, by the expression of that view, and now I claim I've been harmed uh, by your expression of that view. And so now I say, well, therefore it doesn't fall within the scope of your freedom of express, right to freedom of expression, and uh, you should either silence yourself or be silenced. Well, that's a fairly clear-cut case of a non-harm. 
uh, when we speak about the harm principle, we, we don't mean mere discomfort at the expression of views because otherwise they could cut both ways. So I could be discomforted by the expression of your view and then you could be discomforted by my discomfort at the expression of your view and then we're both going to be silenced in some way. So clearly it can't refer to cases like that. That's not to say that, that there are not going to be some difficult cases, some hard cases where it's unclear whether the harm is of the right sort and the right magnitude uh, that would uh, that would warrant an, uh, an interference or a, a limitation on academic freedom. But I think one needs to discuss those hard cases on their merits. It's in the nature of the complexity of the world that there's not going to be a formula t- that you can use in advance to solve all of those cases. But that doesn't mean to say they're not clear cases. Clear cases where you are clearly harming somebody and then your right does not extend that far. And then cases where... All you're doing is upsetting somebody and that's not a harm under the harm principle and you ought not to uh, be restricted in your freedom of expression. Right. So you've said one thing that I imagine is quite controversial at the University of Cape Town, which is that offense doesn't equal harm. We need something over and above offense in order to bring the harm principle into uh, into operation and to justify a limitation on freedom. Um, I think that's very important and it's certainly a message that's been lost in the in the past few years. At UCT. Not just at UCT, unfortunately at many universities around the world. Uh, but it's, it's untenable to think that the mere fact that you're offended by somebody's speech is a grounds for silencing them. In, in part for the reason that I cited earlier, that they can just take reciprocal offense and then your expression of your offense is now harmful to them and, uh, and you must be silenced in the expression of that. We can't operate a society like that. All right. And then the other thing you said was... Um, it's difficult to come up with a sort of workable kind of definition that tells us exactly when the harm principle comes into operation. And the South African constitution has tried to do that, right? It defines academic freedom as an instance of freedom of expression and says freedom of expression does not extend to certain things such as incitement to violence or to actively cause harm. Um, I'd imagine the constitution writers had quite a difficult time actually coming up with a workable concept. But we're going to be discussing the constitution in later episodes. Um, it's just important to be aware of these these issues and these problems. So if the constitution is treating academic freedom as merely a form of freedom of expression, then I think that might be too narrow a view of academic freedom for the reasons that I cited earlier. Ideas about who's going to be appointed and who's going to be admitted to be a student, those can also be questions of academic freedom, but they're not about freedom of expression. Right. I think that's very interesting to know that, um, you know, the concept of academic freedom in general doesn't necessarily mean what we think it means in the South African context solely because of the constitution. Hmm. It doesn't just reduce the freedom of expression for academics. Right. Yeah. And we're definitely going to be revisiting that question, I think, in later episodes. So thanks for alerting us to it. But now, what do we do with opinions that are sort of expressed in good faith by academics that might be deeply offensive to marginalized people? So we've come up with this idea that offense doesn't equal harm. Um, but there's some people who argue, probably in good faith, that it, it does when a group is marginalized, for example. And I'm going to just give you a recent example in which this kind of argument was made in order to frame this discussion a little bit. And then I'll just ask you to comment. In April last year, there were four scientists at Stellenbosch University, and they published a study in a journal that was called Aging Neuropsychology and Cognition. It's a scientific journal. The article was entitled 
age and education-related effects on cognitive functioning in colored South African women. Now, the thesis of this article was that age and low education levels and unhealthy lifestyle behaviors contribute to low cognitive functioning in human beings. Now, ostensibly, the reason why the study was carried out in an ethnically homogenous group of people of the same sex in a limited geographic location, which was around Cape Town, was to control for sort of irrelevant variables that might affect the outcome of the study. And I understand that this is a fairly common practice in epidemiological studies of this nature. Now, as soon as the study was published, there was a lot of outcry in the media where the study was labeled racist and offensive. And an associate professor in the English department here at UCT, her name is Barbara Boswell, created an online petition calling on the journal to retract the article. Now, the petition was signed by over 10,000 people, and it eventually resulted in, in the author's um, retracting the article. The petition reads, We ask that you retract it because of the, its racist ideological underpinnings, its flawed methodology, and its reproduction of harmful stereotypes of colored women. The authors ignore a large body of post-colonial and critical race theory, which shows, one, that the idea of race is a set of articulated political relations, and two, that racial categories are highly unstable, fluid, and provisional. The authors eventually did retract the article, as I said, and Stellenbosch University apologized for the trauma that it caused to marginalized people. Have you got any thoughts on this? Well, I'm familiar with that case, but I'm only familiar with it through the press, and I know better than to trust everything that I read in the newspaper. So I can't speak with authority about the specifics of, of this case. Uh, presumably you'd like to link this to the question of academic freedom. Would you like to phrase the question about that? Right, well, I think one of the sort of main gripes of Dr. Boswell, who wrote this petition, was that the authors of the study had kind of ignored post-colonial theory and critical race theory and what they had to say about race and racism. And it raises the question, ought scholars be free to ignore what post-colonial theory and critical race theory have to say? Yes, uh, if, if they believe that theory is flawed in an inappropriate way of addressing the question. So, so let me say, I, I can't comment on the methodology of the specific paper, but I do worry about the use of those sort of categories. What I find curious is that those categories are used routinely throughout South Africa all the time uh, over the protests of many of us. Uh, and they regard it as uncomplicated and straightforward and helpful proxies for all sorts of things on so many occasions. And then you'll get an item of research like this that uh, for some reason or another uh, triggers a negative response and now people suddenly object to the use of the categories which they find to be oversimplifications. Well, I agree. They're oversimplifications. They mask all kinds of differences. You think you've got an homogenous group, but it's not really homogenous because individuals are individuals and all kinds of differences can be masked by these categories into which they're assigned. But that very same point applies uh, in all kinds of other areas. So there are two questions here, I think. The one is about the academic freedom of, of researchers, and the other is about how sensible it is to use categories of this kind. I don't believe it's useful to use categories of this kind. Uh, but uh, I'm not going to interfere with people who, who want to use them. I'm not going to shut them down. I'm going to argue against the use of those categories, uh, but I don't believe that people like that should be shut down. And then in this particular case, I just want to note the kind of inconsistency between the reaction here and the reaction in other cases. 
Right. And there seem to be two different arguments here. The one is the methodology is flawed because you've used categories that actually don't map onto any sort of proper factual scenario, right? It's, it's a flawed way to conduct a study, flawed way to classify things. The second is don't use that way of classifying things because some people will find it offensive. Um, and I don't think they've really made a distinction between those two arguments here, at least not in the petition. They seem to glide between one and the other constantly. I'm not entirely sure what the argument is. I agree there are two different issues here. So let me first qualify something that I've said before. It may be that sometimes the use of these categories is the best proxy that we have for a certain kind of research. So if you look in America, for example, um, African-Americans uh, have a high incidence of sickle cell anemia than does the rest of the population. But of course, it's not true that every African-American has a greater risk of a sickle cell disease. And I've certainly heard the mistake made in the past where people have assumed that if you're African in America, that you are at higher risk. And they fail to distinguish, for example, between West Africans, where it's more common, and East Africans, where uh, it's no more common as far as I know. And so what you've got here is you've got a proxy, which in a very general sense might be helpful. But if you don't recognize that if you burrow down, you'll find a diversity and complexity and you just rest content with the proxy, then you're not going to be doing very good science. So it may be that in certain circumstances, the use of these kind of categories has some limited value until we develop the understanding that enables us to burrow down. Eventually, what you do is you burrow down to the individual level and sort of look at personalized medicine and the individual's genome and, and work out what their risk profiles are and what their particular conditions are and how they'll react to, uh, to medical interventions. So I just want to clarify, I'm, I'm not suggesting these, these proxies are never useful, but I think they are oversimplified and they're used far too often. It may very well be that that is true in this uh, particular case, but as I say, I can't, uh, I can't comment on, with authority on that. Then there's the second point that you made. And the second point was about the offense to marginal groups. Now, the curious thing here is that groups that are really marginalized in the sense that they have no voice and when they speak, they simply not heard. When you raise an objection on the basis of their taking offense, it won't be heard. It won't be heard and it won't be acted on. So to the extent that you can actually leverage power to operationalize your offense and to get people's behavior to be altered, you're actually less marginalized than you otherwise would be. So my worry with freedom of expression more generally and with this form of academic freedom is that if you try to justify a limitation because it's going to offend marginalized people, you'll actually find that the limitations that actually take place are not when marginalized people have been offended, it's when non-marginalized people have been offended or less marginalized people have been offended. Because the whole point about marginalization is your offense doesn't count. That's what it counts. That's what it means to be marginalized or part of what it means to be marginalized. So to the extent that you can actually get people to shut up or to retract papers on the basis of your offense, you're not marginalized, at least not in that regard. Right. And in this case, the, the, the makers, the authors of this petition really did seem to have a lot of power, right? They forced uh, an apology from Stellenbosch University, forced uh, the authors to retract the article 
the journal, if you try access the article now in the journal, the journal has put something up about why the paper's been retracted, um, also criticizing the paper. But let's leave behind this idea of methodology just for a second and concentrate on the moral issues at play here. Um, so if we can say that this did sort of perpetuate stereotypes about colored women, um, and leaving aside what we said earlier about sort of marginalization, um, do we accept that the perpetuation of certain racial stereotypes might be harmful um, such that the harm principle now comes into operation? Would this be, in your view, grounds for limitation on academic freedom? Well, this is a complicated matter. Uh, it's a complicated matter because on the one hand, you want to get, uh, you want to get at the truth. And, uh, but what happens if the truth is that there are properties that are unevenly distributed across different groups. Now, I don't believe that's the case in the study from the limited amount that I know about it. They were not trying to show, nor did they conclude that there were racial differences. They were trying to uh, actually control for, uh, as you indicated, uh, irrelevant variables in order to determine the role of education and age, was it? Uh, so I don't believe that's what they were trying to do here. But you can imagine somebody who's engaged in a research program that's, say, wanting to work out whether there are average differences between men and women or between people of different purported races uh, with respect to some property. And uh, then the question is, well, should people like this be be silenced? Well, on the one hand, you may say, well, it depends on the finding, because if, you, uh, if, if your finding undoes the stereotype, then people are not likely to take offense. People who are opposed to the stereotype are not likely to take offense. Whereas if it reinforces the stereotype, uh, then they may indeed take offense. What's complicated in these areas is that even if there are average differences between people, let's take average differences between men and women, there's a human tendency to misinterpret that finding and to think, let's say, just because men are on average taller than women, that all men are taller than all women. Now, if you make this explicit, people will not make that error with respect to, to sexes. But if you say something about the distribution, let's say, of uh, intellectual aptitudes between men and women, so let's say more men on the tail ends of the spectrum and uh, than there are women, so more men with cognitive impairment in certain areas than, than there are women, and then men at a higher level operating in certain areas, more men than, uh, than women, then uh, people immediately assume that you're saying that men are more intelligent than women. That's a mistaken inference from the claim that's being made. Now, I don't think that mistaken inferences from the claims that are being made is a grounds to silence people. What you should be doing instead is trying to enhance public understanding of the findings. Finding average differences is not a justification for discrimination. Uh, I mean, you may have asked a question about why people want to investigate these sorts of things in the first place. Why is that their research priority? But there are interesting questions to be asked about that. And if people want to ask those, I don't think that they should be shut down on that basis. Right. But there does seem to be a sort of historical sensitivity, especially, for example, with regard to eugenics or um, those kinds of faulty race-based sciences. Um I'm not sure if I would be comfortable if there was a eugenicist sort of operating at the University of Cape Town in full view of everybody. Well, now we're looking at a slightly different question. One of the problems with eugenicists is that they tend to oversimplify matters. So they will make the very sort of error that I was speaking about before. 
But having a eugenicist, uh, although that person may be mistaken in all kinds of their views, it, it doesn't mean that they ought to be silenced. There, there are lots of people around the university who hold views that I think are deeply, deeply flawed. But the response to that is not for me to try to shut them down, even if I had the power to do so. So right. we, we would have to tolerate, to a certain extent, misguided people. Now, matters do become complicated because some people will say, well, this, the eugenic science is just not proper science. It's not being done properly. Uh, but then that must be tested in the realm of peer review and uh, in professional organizations and professional societies. And there may be difficult cases where you've got somebody who's teaching this kind of material in the classroom. Uh, and it's very difficult to know how to handle cases like that. I would tend not to silence them, but to give counterpoints to uh, to show that there's a whole body of opinion that runs counter to that. Right. I mean, we always say in terms of the marketplace of ideas, and this is often in a more sort of political sense, is it's better for people just to express their ridiculous opinions in public where people can shut them down and tell them that they're being ridiculous. Because what happens is when they're banned and they go into private um, and they're hidden from the view of the rest of us where they're shielded from debate, so that can be a lot more dangerous than insidious. I agree. I agree. So if you take Holocaust deniers, for example, I would much rather Holocaust deniers come out and say what they want to say. And then we can, we can meet that uh, with evidence and arguments rather than play into their ideas of conspiracy theories by, by silencing them. Now, of course, there's a question. What happens if you had a Holocaust denier teaching in a university and teaching history student, history classes where he's, uh, he or she is denying the Holocaust? Uh, again, there's a cost to having that freedom of expression and that uh, that academic freedom, but I don't think the best way is to silence people. Uh, they they may not make it into peer-reviewed journals because their methodology will be found wanting and their evidence will be found wanting, and then they won't make it up the ranks, as it were, in academia because they haven't published in reputable enough journals. So there may be implications of that kind, uh, and that may in turn impact on questions of tenure, uh, but... Uh, to, to silence somebody and to stop them from teaching because we don't like their views is probably not the best way to go. It's not that it's it's without cost to allow them to continue, but in general, if we were to silence people whenever we think they're mistaken, we're going to get a lot more silencing than we really should have. So the topic of silencing, I think, and again, this is one of the reasons why we care about this question now in, in 2020, um, is that recently there have been some suggestions that South African universities that who should teach and what should be taught is ultimately a kind of political question. Um, and this is a question that has to be guided by these concepts of transformation and decolonization. Everyone agrees that transformation is a good thing. Everyone agrees that decolonization is a good thing. And now we need to make changes to the curriculum in light of that to give effect to these principles or these ideas. What do you think of these suggestions? I think they're terrible suggestions. Uh, first of all, f for all the purported agreement about the goodness of transformation and decolonization, there really is not much definition of these terms. In fact, whenever I've probed and asked what do you mean by these terms, I don't get clear answers. What I tend to get is ad hominem invective. So if you got these what are called hooray terms, you get boo terms and hooray terms, you've got a term that warms everybody's heart and everybody in, signs up for it in some way, of course, not everybody signs up for it, for these terms, but in, even insofar as everybody signs up for them, it's not that there's deep content to these ideas that you're now going to apply. So what you're going to find is 
a deeply politicized process for interpreting those concepts and then trying to dictate who's going to teach and what they're going to teach and how they're going to teach it. And that's just a very, very dangerous idea. And then the problem really is that it's somebody sitting in an office somewhere that gets to decide what everybody else gets to teach and learn, right? As opposed to what gets taught and what gets learnt being decided via a matter of sort of spontaneous order that arises just because ideas reveal themselves to be the best ideas. Yeah, I'm not worried that especially it's from somebody sitting in an office, if it's somebody standing in a classroom who's got the power to uh, enforce their views across other classrooms, that would worry me as much. Uh, But yes, if you're trying to impose conformity and uniformity, then you're not going to have a diversity of ideas, and that is going to be antithetical to the pursuit of truth. Right. So I think we've, we've sketched what is hopefully a kind of workable yet broad concept of academic freedom. Um, and I just want to narrow this into a sort of more concrete case, um, although we had the Stalinbosch example, which was also a concrete case. Um, but I want to ask you about some of the things that you said in the media um, and some of the things that you've written about. So in 2016, UCT management decided to invite the Danish cartoonist Fleming Rose to deliver the university's TB Davy Memorial Lecture. And I, you referred to TB Davy earlier, and he was really known as being a prominent defender of academic freedom and a defender of academic freedom against the attacks by the apartheid state. Um, and this lecture is really meant to celebrate academic freedom. But later that year, UCT decided to disinvite Mr. Rose from the from delivering the lecture. And this was a decision that you criticized quite heavily. Can you tell us a bit about the reasons that UCT management offered for its decision to revoke Rose's invitation and why you criticized it? Right. Well, first of all, the university executive attempted to get the Academic Freedom Committee to rescind its own invitation to uh, Mr. Rose to deliver the Academic Freedom uh, Lecture. So they really wanted the Academic Freedom Committee to do its its dirty work. And the then Academic Freedom Committee refused to do that. And it was at that point that the executive took the decision to disinvite him over the protestations of the Academic Freedom Committee. And Max Price, who was the vice chancellor at the time, made a, a public statement about his rationale for for the disinvitation, he and his colleagues' rationale for the disinvitation. And uh, he made a number of, uh, of arguments, none of which I think uh, withstood scrutiny. So one thing he said was that uh, it would provoke conflict on campus, that it would lead to protest and disruption and divide and inflame the campus. Now, these are very vague terms. Uh, if by dividing the campus he means that opinion would be divided, well, opinion is regularly divided on campus, but that doesn't mean to say that when opinion is divided as a result of a visiting speaker, we disinvite the visiting speaker. If uh, if he was speaking about inflaming in the sense of leading to violence, well, there was no evidence provided for that. Uh, this actually ties into his second concern, which was about security. He thought that there might be violence as a result of um, of inviting Mr. Rose. But when the Academic Freedom Committee asked him whether they had any evidence uh, of uh, of threatened violence, he said there was none. So they were sort of anticipating this violence in the in the absence of uh, uh, of any evidence. Uh, on that score, I should say that if I knew that my saying something would lead to imminent violence, I would restrain myself from saying it in the moment. But then the person who would be reacting violently to what I'd say would need to be taken in hand 
so that five minutes later or an hour later or a day later, I could say that I, what I wanted to say without that. You, you can't have what's known as the assassin's uh, veto, whereby somebody who's prepared to resort to violence can, uh, can shut people down. We may in the moment need to restrain ourselves in order to prevent that kind of reaction, but we can't silence ourselves in an ongoing way because there's this background uh, threat. But there's no evidence in this case that there, that there was such a, a background threat. So the security concern, I think, was, uh, was in a, inappropriate as well. Another thing you said, and I'm quoting here, it might retard rather than advance academic freedom on campus, unquote, to, uh, to invite uh, Mr. Rose. And this this just sounds like uh, doublespeak to me, because to to pander to purported or imagined intolerance about a speaker, and think that that is now going to advance uh, academic freedom, is uh, just not to understand what academic freedom and freedom of expression is. So none of the reasons that were provided for the disinvitation, I think, were good reasons. But again, it seems that the politics of offence kind of played into this example, right? I mean, the issue with Fleming Rose that I think everybody perceived was that he had published while he was a cartoonist working for the Jyllandsposten. Let me just clarify, he's not a cartoonist himself. Uh, he was uh, an, an editor, a cultural editor at the Jyllandsposten. And yes, he invited Danish cartoonists to submit drawings of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, this was against the background of perceived self-censorship among artists and others. For example, there'd been a children's book that had been written about the life of the prophet, and the publishers had found a great deal of difficulty finding an artist willing to illustrate it because they felt that their lives would be threatened from doing so. That was just one of many examples. And so what the Elon's Boston wanted to do was to test the actual climate in the society and see whether one could publish drawings. And so they wrote to all the Danish cartoonists asking them to submit drawings. Not all of them submitted cartoons in our sense of the word cartoons. Some of them were just straightforward drawings, uh, entirely unoffensive, except perhaps insofar as they were purporting to represent uh, the prophet. Uh, but others were more characteristic uh, cartoons. Some of the cartoons, by the way, lampooned the Yilans Poston for provoking people by publishing these cartoons. There was this kind of self-reflective uh, criticism as well. Uh, he invited these cartoons. They published the 12 that they received. There was no immediate uh, serious negative response to that. Uh, but some months later, as a result of people going around and stirring, uh, there were these violent worldwide uh, uh, responses to the cartoons. So UCT's reasoning seemed to be um, Muslims are offended when images of the Prophet Muhammad are published. Fleming Rose was in charge of a publication that facilitated people publishing uh, images of the Prophet Muhammad, which would have been offensive to Muslims. Therefore, um, at UCT in this charged political climate, because people are offended, it's going to cause trouble and it's going to raise security concerns. Is that a fair characterization? Probably not. <laughs> uh, I think there's probably a more charitable interpretation of what they're saying. First of all, um, my understanding is that uh, Muslims are not united in the prohibition on representing the Prophet, and there are there's a long history of Islamic representation, uh, pictorial representation of the of the Prophet. So it, it it can't be that Muslims are united in this. I, I think the concern of UCT was that these cartoons, or at least some of them, if not all of them, were Islamophobic, and he was now a vehicle of anti-Muslim prejudice and that that is what would uh, would foster the offence. 
Now, I do not believe that to be the case. Uh, Mr. Rose has actually defended the rights of fundamentalist Muslims to express themselves in Denmark and elsewhere, uh, and in Denmark even to express their opposition to democracy. So he seems to me to be a highly principled uh, defender of freedom of expression. Uh, some claims were made about him that he had not published uh, cartoons critical of Christianity and Judaism, uh, that they had refused to publish cartoons from Iran denying and lampooning the Holocaust. These claims are all just factually false. Uh, they have routinely published cartoons critical of Christianity and Judaism, and they wanted just to treat Islam in the same way. Uh, and they have published cartoons that the Iranians published about the Holocaust, not because they endorse the cartoons. Mr. Rose is quite emphatic that uh, publishing something does not constitute endorsement of it. It's to provide information to people. And I, for one, am interested to know what's going on in Iranian newspapers. So I'm interested to know what cartoons they are publishing there. Uh, and if you don't take the magazine to be endorsing this, but representing it, conveying the information, this is a valuable thing to do. So I think those accusations against him of Islamophobia are utterly groundless and uh, and quite cynical means for trying to silence people. Perhaps it's easy, though, to sort of dismiss the safety security concerns that we were talking about with the benefit of hindsight. Um, and I mean, this took place in sort of late 2015, early 2016, right? Um, and you'll remember sort of what a frightening place this campus was at that point in time. Um, should perhaps not be a little bit more sort of charitable to UCT, thinking that there might have actually been violence that ensued um, if... Mr. Rose had been allowed to give the lecture. Now, here I think you're being too charitable. <laughs> I'll tell you why. First of all, there's offense and there's offense. So people can be offended around some issues, not around other issues. And we know what sorts of issues people were taking offense at at the time. We don't have any evidence that it, it would apply to Mr. Rose. Uh, my suspicion is that Mr. Rose would have come, delivered his lecture and left, and most of the campus would have actually been unaware of who he was and what he was doing because, in general, the TB Davy lecture is not very well attended, unfortunately. So I think that's the likely scenario. Of course, we need to be sensitive to the possibility that things will be different, but that's why we asked the executive whether they had any evidence of uh, of threats, and they didn't. Uh, and in the absence of that, you can't well just anticipate that there's going to be violence and 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 silence yourself. Um, Mr. Rose was subsequently invited to South Africa uh, to deliver the Hernley Lecture, which he gave in Johannesburg and in Cape Town, and he gave it in Cape Town. Uh, without any incident at all, and without any serious security precautions either, uh, at the place that he uh, that he gave it. So I I think that this was fear mongering, as opposed to a, a genuine concern. So given that UCT has failed in this way to protect academic freedom, what needs to be done now in order to sort of better its track record? Well, lots of things. So this comes back, I think, to your question about the climate at the time when there were all these violent protests. Well, violent protests, criminal protests, that is exactly where you uh, enforce the law. So you can't allow this climate where people are engaging in reckless criminality, violent criminality, let that go unchecked, uh, and then say that you're living in an environment where you have to start silencing people because it may offend an element of that kind. Uh, if you nip that kind of behavior in the bud and you show that you do not tolerate that kind of behavior, you are doing something towards creating an environment where people can express their views without the threat of, uh, of violence. 
So I think that's a really good place to leave this discussion. Thank you for joining us today. That's really been a very enlivening um, and enlightening conversation. And hopefully we can take this concept that we've sort of established in this episode as we go forward and discuss a number of these other issues. I know we'll be discussing Salata, for example, in a future episode. We're going to devote almost an entire episode to a discussion of what happened around Salata's giving the TB Davy Memorial Lecture. So thank you, Professor Benatar. And thanks to our listeners for joining us. If you'd like to continue this conversation about any of the issues that were raised in today's episode, you can find us online, especially on Twitter at the handle at ProgressRSA. And if you'd like to find out more about Progress SA, you can visit our website, www.progress.org.za. Thanks very much.